Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. The last time I spoke with this gentleman, we were going to have him back more regularly, but he got real busy. He was on a panel. We were talking about the 1619 Project, which has since won a Pulitzer Prize. And uh, now he's out there in the MSNBC streets uh, winning Emmys as well. And he's now the host of Into America, the podcast. Let me welcome back to the show, Mr. Tremaine Lee. Welcome. Thank you for having me. But but the soundtrack, that's how we're doing it. I hear, I hear AZ, Firm, yeah. that's how come we're doing on. it. Nas, okay. come on, come on. Yes. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, so. Meghan Markle during her interview with uh, the queen, Oprah Winfrey, uh, and I did Queen Mother more on purpose today because I'm the only queens I'm rocking with, hmm. uh, talked about the monarchy as, a fir- as the firm. And I thought that was interesting. You it's know. a crime family. It's a crime yes. family. Yes. Been one for a very long time. And and let me say, can I just, you know, I'm I'm just now waking up, and I don't want to say I'm woke at all, but I'm just now coming to this realization that every single thing, even my fairy tales, you know, because I don't know any little girl didn't grow up with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. We all imagine ourselves, black girls alike, as, as the princess, and we were all conditioned and trained to want a prince one day to come and sweep us off our feet. But what does that even mean? And yeah. so listening to Meghan Markle, you know, I was one of the two billion people that tuned into her wedding. I enjoyed it. The the, the black <laughs> choir and, and her black mama and Serena and them and all of the, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, it was beautiful. But I'm like, why, why is this something that we, you know, we, we all aspire to? Like, how crazy is this indoctrination into white supremacy that we actually... Say they, they, they say white supremacy is a hell of a drug, and clearly clearly it is. But one thing I was thinking about watching that, I, I did watch a piece of that last night, is even with her, you know, who could basically pass, live a white life, skin as fair as it wants to be, if she's catching it, you know, imagine, just imagine, and just how silly, obviously we know how silly racism and white supremacy really is, um, but it just, the notion that she has something else inside of her, the notion... Not that it has to be reflected in her skin or her hair. Or the notion that she has some blackness in there just throws them off. And that's <laughs> it's wild. I would say, though, because she's so light, that almost it's almost like she's the betrayer. And they had mm. to kind of double down to let y'all know that she's not like us. Mm. Whereas if she were dark skin, you wouldn't have to say anything. <laughs> it's, it's you know what I'm saying? Right. We can could, we could say, you know, okay. But mm-hmm. she she's the one that could... Cause she's popular, you know, she's the one that could change the paradigm. She's more Mm -hmm. dangerous than any of them. You Mm -hmm. know, it's almost like Plessy versus Ferguson until they looked at his feet on that train. Was it Plessy? Yeah. Yeah. He got on that train. They were like, wait a minute, your feet are too big to be white. Whatever that meant. I guess (laughs) it was like, Hey, wait a minute. He got on the white train and passed all the way through until he didn't. And that's kind of like the craziness. Like what is race? What is we all started in Africa? So what does this even mean? We all have something else in us, all of us. What yeah. does this even mean? What are, What are you actually saying to us? And I think we need to start to dismantle that. But I'm I'm looking for the monarchy to to go away. I think Queen Elizabeth should be the last to sit on that throne, mm. and that should be it. We should be done with worshiping at the feet of unworthy men. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't know if that's going to be ending anytime soon. I think I think they 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 love it. <laughs> they, who's they're that? addicted to it. They can't. Who's that? No, who's it? Who's addicted they, to it? I, I think I think the big we, you know, excluding we, um, but I think the big we, I think their their country, 
I think that it upholds um, the, the face of white supremacy in, a certain, supremacy in a certain kind of way. And I heard someone say recently, and I don't know if it's 100% true, but it's, it made sense to me, is that there are no diamond mines in England. And when you think about the great wealth and the jewels and everything that that crown sits upon has been stolen, right? Through violence and bloodshed. They colonized the brown black world and took everything. They're not gonna let that face crumble easily, right? Cause they need that veneer, right? They need it to look nice. They need black people and brown people across this country, the, the world to aspire to that and see that fair skin and that crown and all the history connected to it. They need us to love it and they need to love it. They need to make sure that has that pretty veneer on it. So I don't, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. <sighs> All right. All right. 866-801-8255. And even as you're saying that, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling right now because if we all agree that it doesn't, it's not a thing, it goes away. And it's just that simple, right? Yeah. I mean, even the money that we spend, that we use is an agreement that it has value because it has no value. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have agreed that it has value. So therefore it does. Now as an American, it's in our best interest that this has value, mm -hmm. which is why we don't really say too much about Gaddafi and what he was trying to do and why he's not mm -hmm. here anymore. We don't talk too much about United Saudi States Arabia. <laughs> and, yeah. We don't talk about why Khashoggi will not be avenged by this administration or any other. We don't talk about those things, Tremaine in, in this country. Mm -hmm. why not why 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 shouldn't we or sh or how should we well i think i think there, there are too many among us who benefit from these structures remaining in place and that's it and that's it right we know that it's it's not only costs us as black people and it always costs us in our blood and opportunities and agency and i would argue our true citizenship it costs us a lot but on the other hand is you know there are people who have continued to benefit from white supremacy and they always have and so even if in a time now, we're about to start this uh, trial of George Chauvin. I mean, of uh, uh, oh, whatever Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, Derek, yes. Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin uh, about to start this this trial. Um, you know, we we again, we know that they just benefits too too greatly from it. Uh, and before we get to to this Derek Chauvin trial, uh, jury selection started today. Uh, your latest podcast is about the coronavirus vaccine, which I thought was interesting because I thought you were going to talk about it from one perspective, but you got mm -hmm. into it from black people actually want to get it, but they can't. Yeah, talk, I think talk, to... talk about that, because I was like, you know, the narrative is we don't want it. Mm -hmm. And then I've been oh. on these airways bringing on every kind of doctor I can find to talk about mm -hmm. why we have why why not we have to do anything, but why this is not Tuskegee, why this is different. But you you came at it from a different angle. Tell, tell us about, first of all, the origin of this particular last podcast of yours and then what we should glean from it. Uh, yeah, I think I think the narrative that black people are just so distrustful and mistrustful of the medical field, which many of us are rightfully so, that that's a reason we're not getting the vaccine is, is quite frankly lazy. And it also absolves a lot of people of the responsibility to penetrate communities that you've never penetrated, to set up systems and structures of delivery that you just have never done before. Right. So they're, they're scratching their heads. How can we get the vaccine there? The people just don't want it. And as long as you say the people don't want it and they're fearful, then you don't have to try. But from everyone that I've been talking to, certainly there are some contrarians among us and folks who are like, look, I ain't taking it. But a lot of people that I know are, are trying to sign up to make sure we're protecting ourselves and our communities. And I heard a doctor, a black doctor, I've been paying attention to these black doctors. I trust black doctors, right? Saying that we cannot be the only community that's not protected. And I think a lot of people that's resonating with a lot of black folks 
And so the, the, the conception of the story is, let's just disregard that lazy narrative for a second and talk about the, the, the same things that made Black folks more susceptible to catching COVID and more likely to die from COVID. It's the systemic and structural nature of the way we live and we die. And that's the same thing that's preventing us from getting the vaccine. You have a trend in New Jersey, right? Um, very segregated, uh, poor, high unemployment rate, very Black, very brown, very immigrant. But then you have Princeton 20, min 20 minutes away. You have all these other communities, these wealthy white, lily white suburbs all around it. And they're getting these vaccines in these beautiful clinics and these doctors got the TVs and it's orderly. And in the black community, they can't find a vaccine. You have seven different portals. You got to sign up for this list, sign up for that list. You got to jump through hoops. Do you have access to Wi-Fi? Can you, do you have the privilege of sitting there and refreshing and refreshing and refreshing? No, you don't. And they know it. And so the, the, this episode was, you know, let's break down the mythology around this and let's show one example of how, um, you know, this community is actually stepping up to kind of fill a gap where the, the city and state haven't been able to with the partnership with the state. The state says, you know what, um, we'll, we'll have a certain allotment of, of vaccines. Let's go to the faith community. Let's go to our, our pastors. Let's, let's go to the churches to see if they have folks. And guess what? Folks are lining up, signing up with the help of the pastors. So, you know, it, it, it was a good story. It was a good one to do. I mean, it's, it's tough because we're still dealing with all the inequity and all the nonsense that we deal with in every other aspect of our lives. But this one has a little bit of a bright, a bright uh, note to it. I keep I say this like voting, you know, all the people Oh, our vote doesn't matter. Well, why do they tr work so hard to try to prevent you from mm -hmm. voting? Why they why did Georgia just pass a whole gaggle of new? We just talked about this last week, too. Georgia's like, oh, y'all not going to do this again. Matter of fact, we're going to right now under SB 241 voters would need to be 65 years or older, absent from their precinct, observing a religious holiday to file an absentee <laughs> ballot. Uh, to be to to provide an absent, they have to prove that they're providing care for someone who's physically disabled and required to work for the protection of the health, the life, or safety of public uh, of the public during this entire time that the polls are open in order to get an absentee voting ballot in Georgia. Mm -hmm. They just passed it, so they're Republican. So last week they passed a whole bunch of you know shutting down polling places, making it impossible for people to vote. So there's mm -hmm. going to be a backlog, of course, of folk at places and waiting in long lines. And now they're just chipping, chipping, chipping away because obviously mm -hmm. the vote matters. And if yep. this vaccine wasn't so important, white people wouldn't be coming from their neighborhoods lying about their <laughs> and coming in and taking the vaccines in black neighborhoods and flying to other countries to get it as well if it wasn't an important thing to get so i'm just mm -hmm. looking at how the movements are make, made but talk a little bit tremaine about race because when you say you know racism is the reason why black people are disproportionately impacted by COVID 19 a lot of folk can't digest what that means yeah I mean, well, it starts off, I mean, in a very simple kind of way. When you think about what redlining is, they literally drew a red line around certain communities on a map and said, we will not ensure home ownership in this red area. It's too risky, right? So that means Black folks who are due to segregation, forced into certain communities, could not build wealth because they could not buy homes because they could not get those, the, those mortgage, the mortgage insurance, right? So we have that compounding generation after generation. Inside those spaces, you have crumbling infrastructure, right? From your pipes, let's think about what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now. Let's talk about Flint, Michigan, right? You're all, so you're clustered in these spaces. They're already um, under-resourced, infrastructure issues, transportation issues. You have, let's think about a place like West Harlem, and some of these communities that are surrounded by bus depots. So everybody's breathing it in. So all the kids have asthma. 
You talk about the actual literal air we're breathing, or you think about that 85 mile stretch between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, where there are like a hundred refineries. And this is where black people have been clustered in to live, right? And so all of those things, access to in those spaces, in that red line, which you can take a map today and you know overlay it to that old map, access to fresh foods and vegetables and adequate schools and adequate access to healthy, um, you know, educate, access to quality education, right? All of those things create just a toxic storm that makes you more susceptible to all of the maladies, the virus included, because now it's densely populated, right? So now you're living on top of each other in crumbling buildings with lead in, in, the, in the paint still, right? You can't get to work because where, can you get, get a bus? You know, you gotta take this bus to that. It's just a whole cacophony of issues. And that's what we're talking about structural issues, even beyond just the racism, meaning we don't like you because your skin is brown. We will beat you in the head with something. It's we're going to create this environment and put a literal wall around you and access to all the opportunities, access to the, the, the healthy foods, access to education that can get you out. Right. And this is a compounding effect. And so it's, it's pretty straightforward when you just drive through one neighborhood into the next and you'll start to see it. And it's not by accident. These are byproducts of policy, right? So things are working exactly as they've been intended to. Well, what do people say? Well, why why do you stay there? Why not just move, Mr. Lee? Why why well, are you in these places? Well, again, going back to this idea of wealth, right? If you the average wealth for a white family is ten times that amount of a, the average black family, and a lot of that wealth comes from home ownership, right? We could do a whole seven hour series just on home ownership and what has been stolen right? The violent economic dispossession of our people, right? But that lack of access to that wealth. You think about the war, World War II, they're coming back and they're creating Levittown, creating these suburbs where low interest um, home loans and all the insurance creating a pipeline to wealth. If you have the wealth to get out, you could leave. But again, we're continually starting from zero or starting from three and then being knocked back because of some other hostile policy. And so it's not as simple Right. We're not we're, as the average black family is not sitting on a big pot of wealth because we haven't been able to inherit that that wealth from our families. What we inherit is the stress and trauma of being black in America. Well, you're you're here. Mm -hmm. How did you get out? Luck. <laughs> you know, I, I happen to come from, you know, working people. Right. So like most of the people I know where I'm from in South Jersey, um, you know, just working people, not very educated people in terms of going to college and all that. But it takes like this is all I got. Like if, if this doesn't work, I don't, I don't know. Some luck and love. So I think it's not that it's impossible, but it takes all of the things to come together, right? So my family, like many other families have had our struggles and family issues and substance abuse, incarcerate, all the things that we have in our families, but by the grace of God and luck and just fortitude. Again, I, I consider I, I, a lot of it is luck because there are some of people in my family raised the same way. We come from a good family you know, a family that don't have much, but just a good family. And I got, <laughs> I got lucky, but also you have to be so, you can't have many missteps. So I've been fortunate enough. There's, there's a, a saying I heard, um, you know, recently that said, if you can't be good, be safe. So fortunately I wasn't always good, but I was mostly safe. So I've avoided incarceration. I've avoided a lot of things by the grace, <laughs> quite frankly, I'm lucky. Um, but all of us aren't so lucky. So I, I just, I'm just thankful. And we come from strong people, right? We come from people who aren't going to, we're not going to break. We're going to bend a lot. And if you, if you, you know, if you, you know, have some fortitude and some luck, you know, you make it. Well, try is in your name. Tremaine yeah. is here. <laughs> Tremaine Lee. You can follow him at try main Lee. Uh, M A I N E L E E. Try main Lee is how you 
can spell that. Uh, 866-801-8255. I want to ask you uh, about this story that came out. Um, you look tall enough to play basketball, but I don't want to insult you. Because uh, just because a person, a black man is tall, doesn't mean that he played basketball. So I will never make that assumption. But there's a new league that they're starting which is an alternative to college for basketball stars. The majority of players, of course, make a good living playing basketball. Uh, multimedia sports brand Overtime is trying to put out a league, a professional league that will offer high school basketball players an alternative to college in preparation for the NBA. Uh, they'll begin September 2021 and will feature 30 of the nation's top prospects ages 16 to 18. The athletes will be given a guaranteed minimum minimum salary of $100,000 in addition to bonuses and equity in the league. And the league's athletes will also have access to health care and disability benefits. And if an overtime athlete elite athlete chooses not to pursue an NBA career. The league will pay them up to a hundred thousand dollars to go towards college tuition players that participate in overtime elite will forfeit their eligibility to play, of course, high school or college basketball. If they join the league, cause they're no longer, I guess, um, we call that, uh, amateurs. amateurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I initially, I wanted to be like, no, you don't give, don't, don't take away college. But then I've been thinking, College, what do you get? You know, mm-hmm. what is it that you're actually getting? And my goal, my hope was like all black elite athletes would go to HBCUs. We mm-hmm. saw the NBA last night celebrate the HBCUs. And I don't wish it was live because there's a pandemic, but I would have loved to see Grambling and FAMU, the band, out at the, you know, because they, they, they played, but they didn't play live inside the arena, which would have been amazing because, you know, those bands are ridiculous at the HBCUs. Um, and, you know, Chris Paul and them did this whole thing the NBA did last night with the All-Star game, which I appreciated. But in, in lieu of that, I'm not mad at this. What are your thoughts? I'm not mad at all. Actually, well, first of all, is, is it is it a black owned operation? That's a good question. Probably not. Okay. So, <laughs> well, let so me not for, for, let me let me. It does <laughs> doesn't say in the article, but those are questions we should be asking from the from the grip, right? Yeah, right from yeah. the top, from the rip off the top. Off the top, I want to know yeah. that, but th- that doesn't pre- preclude me to thinking it's a great idea because um, these colleges make a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars off of the backs of black athletes. When you think about it, there was this, there's this map that's been floating around for a few years that shows the highest paid public employee in every state. And almost without fail, it's always the football coach at the state program, Ohio State, Georgia State, right? They're the the highest paid public employees making millions on the backs of black athletes. And every black athlete is not going to go to the league, right? You talk about football, we're talking about basketball, but football in the NFL, there are no guaranteed contracts, right? And so if you're a, a young college star and you make it, you might not make it for long. Or if you are injured during the course of your play in college, you'd have made somebody a lot of money with your jersey number and everything. So I think um, it's time for black athletes to harness some of that good money and that agency. And I want all black people to get paid. Right. So if you're young and and you're not going to be a mechanical engineer and you're banking it all on football, the pro league is uh, a slim margin. But if there's an opportunity for you to make some money now. Now, again, I think you should put put some energy in the books, too, because you got to make sure if things go wrong, you got something. But I think it's really important. Look at LaMelo Ball. Now, certainly his father has pushed his boys um, a certain kind of way. He's like the Joe Jackson of basketball. But LaMelo <laughs> played in high school, went overseas, didn't go to college, came out. And he's he's one of the hottest um, yeah. rookies in the league yeah, right Michael now. Yeah, Michael Jordan said he's one of the best rookies he's seen in a while. Michael Jordan Doing his thing. Right. So I think the, the adherence, there is the structure around the college programs and there is fanfare and the competition. You're talking about um, SEC and all these the ACC and the Big Ten, major competition. Uh, but if there are opportunities outside of that 
for young black people, especially to carve out a lane for themselves and their families, why not? Yeah, and I had to challenge myself because my initial knee-jerk reaction was rooted in in white supremacy. Because I'm like, what 16-year-old should be getting $100,000? What You know, it's very paternalistic. They won't know what to do with it. They should do for those kids like Reebok did for Allen Iverson, which is to put a majority of it in a trust that they can only access when they're a certain age. As if there's not going to be some brilliant financial wizards among these kids like Mm -hmm. as if these kids don't have the wherewithal to manage money most of them probably don't i mean they're kids i didn't have the wherewithal at 16 to manage Mm -hmm. you know large sums of money and i think a hundred thousand dollars a year is a large sum for anybody not just a 16 or 8 year old 18 year old but i had to back myself up who am i to to say Mm. that this kid can't manage money yeah. Or that and, his and, parents and, are going to do something. They're going to steal his money and they're going to, because I've seen mm-hmm. it, you know, we've seen it play yeah, out. Of course. But that doesn't mean that it has to be the rule. But also to get some solid footing, uh, footing under your feet. Like a lot of families, while you're going that four years of college of not getting paid, which I happen to think that is unfair, right? So you're going through four years of college, your family is wherever, whether it's a rural community or it's in the hood, whatever it is, they're struggling. Meanwhile, one, people are making money off of you while we're struggling here. But that stability, as we know, can create kind of a leveling effect for you. You can think a little clearer when you don't have to call home and it's people hungry and babies are crying. If you have a little bit of something solid on your feet, I think that goes a long way. Listen, we had Michael Tubbs on earlier, uh, the the first city in the country to try a universal basic income, yep. a basic income, uh, f- just $500. Made, a, mm-hmm. made such a difference that now 42 mayors in this country are signing up to do this. Um And you think about, he said, just the freedom. There was one guy who was able to go to real estate school and now he's a real Mm. estate, like change the trajectory of people's lives, you know, just $500. I don't know what a hundred thousand dollars looks like in a black family where the, the athlete, instead of going to college, did this for four years or did Mm -hmm. this for three years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, We're we're also looking at this. Sometimes we don't look at it the right way. Like a lot of times college for a lot of these athletes, it's an internship to prove yourself for the league. Now, again, every student there, there there's some students there who are like, I'm like, I played a year of college football, right? I'm like, I'm here. I'm not going to the the league, but I'm going to play some football, you know, get some grades and and I'm going to enjoy myself. Right. But for other kids who are, are actually have some real serious talent, you know, why not get a paid internship? And that's what it is because they're still getting tape. They're still out there performing. So their future employer, has an opportunity to see what they've done, right? And as we know, unpaid internships negatively affect who? Black and poor students, because I can't afford to move to New York like like right. the rich white kid. I can't afford to do that and work for free. And so this is the same thing to me. So pay the kids. Tremaine Lee is here. Um, how has your life changed since the Pulitzer, since the Emmy? Like what yeah. what has happened? You know, the Pulitzer was the was the big one. Cause like I, you know, I was I was young and at first I didn't fully recognize how it would be hinged to me, right? I think at first I was feeling kind of bad because, you know, I was in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina and I was, you know, out there, out there. And I was telling stories about a lot of struggle and a lot of hurt and a lot of black people dying, right? And hearing those stories of of bodies and addicts and babies. And it was just, it was just terrible, right? And then the the ripple of trauma. So I was kind of shaken by the whole experience. I was out there doing my thing, trying to lift the voice. Um, but then when we were nominated first, and I was like, I wasn't feeling good about it. I felt like it was exploitive in some way. Like who, who, who uh, an award? An award. Then I, I started to process it more. And I was like, it was, journalism is such a valuable resource, right? And the stories we were telling, the work that I was doing, connecting people to the truth, 
right? And pulling back the same work that I'm doing now in terms of pulling back the systemic nature and the structural nature and talking to almost nothing but black folks as experts and as, um, you know, voices, I realized like, you know what, we and I should be proud of the work we did. So after that, I ended up going to the New York Times. So that's, I don't think I, I make the leap to New York, um, which changed the game for me without the Pulitzer. Mm. And so I was grateful for my time in New Orleans and I will forever be in, in debt and have great gratitude towards that city and the survivors and people who have just make a way where there is no way. Um, I think the Emmy felt more like a team sport. The, 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 the Pulitzer was also a part of a team, but it was my individual, here's my stories, here's their stories. The Emmy for work that we did on the, the, the ripple of, the long ripple of gun violence, right? And how those bullets ricochet in the community, right? And unfurling what it actually was going on there and how people are susceptible for violence and how it replicates itself. Um, that felt like a real team effort because that was like producers and me out there in the field. And it was just, you know, it feels good, but I think it's, it's great that I'm, I've been able to, to get these awards for telling the stories that I've been telling from the very beginning. I started in the black press at the Philly Tribune and I was, yes. Bob, shout out to Bob Bogle and everybody there yes, who yes, believed yes. in me and gave me a chance. My first job was at the black, in the black press. So I'm forever indebted. Um, but I've been able to tell these stories in the black press, in newspapers, on digital, um, on MSNBC, in a podcast. And I've been able to do this you know, the awards are great, but it just says that we can we can be ourselves, we can tell our stories and we can make that space. We can make them bend around. It takes a lot of persistence on the craft and being diligent and being like focused and confident. Um, I know that my people got me no matter what. So if anything happens, I can move a little, I ain't gonna say fearless, but I, I feel pretty good. I'm like- You got agency. Listen, yeah. Yeah. and wrong with the Philly the Tribune, Mr. Bogle, if Mr. Bogle ever had me back at some point, I feel like I could go and be, and be good. Don Calloway was on, and as I was researching, I was like, wait, Don talked about this after you talked about it. He had a heart attack mm -hmm. at 39. You had one at 38. Mm -hmm. Again, you look like a big, healthy man, you know, who mm -hmm. looks like you eat right and you're doing all of the right things. But there's a love, level of stress that black people carry around, I think, that yeah. uh, does something to you. You know, I, I think, again, that idea of, of what we inherit often and what we don't, being black in America, um, I know for myself, just um, even aside from being a journalist, just carrying bits of trauma right that we've that we've experienced whether we've experienced it directly or whether it's from our parents or whether from our community um and as a journalist as i'm i'm telling these stories and collecting these stories oftentimes to me i want to you know take a little bit of our pain and let everybody get a little piece of it no, no no this is what happens and know that this is how we're living and this is how we're dying and in doing that i thought i could compartmentalize sometimes like i know what the truth is i understand america and what it's the violence the real violence and abstract violence of what it means to be here. I think I understand it, but I was really putting a piece here and putting a piece here and putting a piece here and putting a piece here. And I think I wasn't processing it. So I was stressed. I was, I was just grinding, right? And I wasn't sleeping right because I'm thinking about stuff and I'm, I'm drinking to try to sleep and I'm running and waking up early. I'm doing all, I'm running and gunning. And I felt, I thought I felt pretty good. Um, I was, again, a former athlete, put on about 20 some pounds more than I needed. So I was a little heavier. I wasn't big but i was heavier um and then it all came crashing down on me and fortunately i have a strong heart um and fortunately i was able to survive because a lot of people don't um and i had to really step back step back and say to myself like you know one what is most important and as seriously as i take my job and what i'm called to do and telling our stories i also have to be here for another day I have to be here for my wife. I got to be here for my daughter. I got a little black girl, eight years old, brilliant, beautiful, amazing, that I need to make sure she's 
you know, happy and healthy and strong and ready to push through this world, right? Um, which I know she will be. So it's changed in that, like, I was, before I was kind of singularly focused. Um, now it's like, you know what? I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna breathe some of this fresh air. I'm 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 gonna let I'm let the young brothers and sisters rock a little bit. I don't need to be everywhere. There was a time where I was like, oh no, something happened in Minnesota, I'm on a flight. Something happened in in Atlanta, I'm there. Where now sometimes like you know what, I value my time at home. I value my time where I'm obviously always thinking and talking about the black experience in America and what it means to be us. But I don't always have to just like clock in. I don't have to do that. Um, So I've been doing a lot of fishing. I've been getting back into fishing. I've been like. You know, I've been I've been just trying to live my best life and, and sit it. back. <laughs> you deserve that. Uh, into America. Next topic. Next podcast. What's going to be? Um, the next podcast is actually on the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. <sighs> right. It's about jury selection and the history behind it and how black people being largely excluded intentionally from from juries has disastrous effects for black people. And so this is our way to tap into the story, but also take a step back. And here's what we should be looking out for. And here's a problem um, that I hope we don't face in this trial for justice sake. Um, but there's there's some long uh, racialized issues with jury selection period. So that's the next one on Thursday morning. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.